I went to Costco two weekends ago. I had returned from India and Mozambique just a few days earlier. We go to Costco once a month to stock up on the basics that we use regularly. I went to the paper products aisle and a lady met me at the entrance of the aisle and told me that they were out of everything, that they would have more in the morning and I could come back then. This was the first moment that the public reaction to COVID-19 really struck me. While traveling, I'd only had one experience related to the coronavirus. They took my temperature before going through customs in Johannesburg and it took only a few seconds. Now we have people waiting hours in line at the airports, trying to take their temperature and getting on with their business. It's hard to imagine that just a few weeks ago, the world seemed to be a very different place than it is now. Across the world, sporting events have been canceled, churches aren't meeting, schools are closed, global markets have collapsed, service and retail businesses have seen customers dwindle to non-sustainable levels, and in many cities, those businesses have been closed down. People are hoarding food and supplies out of fear that everything is going to be shut down. The Federal Reserve is offering trillions of dollars of loans to banks. They are buying up billions and billions of dollars of government debt, and they have dropped interest rates to near zero, where it hasn't been since the 2008 recession. For many of us, this crisis is the most significant challenge that we face in our lifetimes. Most of us weren't even alive during the Vietnam War. Our great-grandparents, our grandparents and parents saw much greater challenges in the Great Depression and in World War II and in other global crises throughout the 20th century. Regional disasters like the hurricanes and fires that have struck America in the past couple of decades have certainly brought um, the kind of trials that we are now experiencing, but only at regional levels. For this generation, this kind of global disaster is new territory, and people are afraid. We are afraid of not having money. We are afraid of losing our jobs. We are afraid of getting sick. We are afraid of going without essential needs. We are afraid of what others might do to us out of desperation. We are afraid of not being able to pay our, our mortgages, our rents, our bills. We are afraid of losing control over our lives and we are afraid of the lives of those we love. I've been reading Psalm 46 the past few days. Scholars are not agreed upon the historical circumstances that prompted the writing of Psalm 46, but whatever it was, there was something happening to the nation of Israel that prompted a lot of fear. It seems it could have been one of two things. It could have been a substantial military siege of Jerusalem, or an earthquake, or some other comparable natural disaster. Regardless, it, it seemed to have an effect on the whole nation. And Psalm 46 was written to strengthen Israel's hope in such a time as this. I thought it would be prudent to divert from our schedule a little bit. I was previously going to preach on Psalm 51 this past weekend. I thought it would be good instead to look at Psalm 46 and see what message God has for us this week. The psalm begins with a brief but clear statement 
about God. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. Now, a refuge is a place where we go to for protection. It's something that we turn to when we're in trouble. We're turned to a refuge because it, it has the strength and the power to defend us, to keep us safe. The psalmist is saying that God has the power to protect and defend us. And that because of this, he is the one, the only one, that we can turn to for protection and care in our times of trouble. And it's not just in isolated times. It says that God is very present in times of trouble. We don't have to make an appointment to get care, like we do when we go to a clinic. We don't even have to wait in line, like when we go to the emergency room. We don't need a permit or a stockpile of ammunition to access the protection that God provides. He is always strong. And he is always available for us. He is always there to protect us. Now we can run and hide in him in times of trouble. And he will always be there. And this should create within us a sense of confidence, a sense of security, a sense of peace. That empowers us to push out the fear that we might be experiencing. After this brief statement about God being our refuge and our strength in times of trouble, the psalmist writes, Therefore, because God is our refuge and our strength, because he is our ever-present help, therefore, we will not fear. Now, fear is a feeling of distress in the face of trouble. It is a concern for the, the potential of feeling pain in the future. We haven't yet felt the pain, but we have a notion that it may come to us or is definitely coming, but it's not here yet. Fear is that feeling that we have when we anticipate bad things happening to us. At its core, fear is the opposite of hope. Whereas hope is the, the confident belief in future good happening to you, fear is the confident belief in future bad happening to you. And fear usually generates responses in us to guard ourselves from the bad happening. And these responses are typically selfish. The psalmist is saying that because God is our ever-present refuge and strength in times of trouble, we have no reason to fear. We can put it off. We can resist believing that future bad is in store for us. And this then strengthens us to respond, not out of selfishness, but out of courage and love. Now, it's not like the psalmist was considering only minor and incidental, and incidental causes of fear. He states that we will not fear, and I quote, Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. The psalmist is imagining a physical disaster that would literally 
destroy or threaten to destroy all of the cities and the inhabited areas of Israel. The earth giving way would be an earthquake or maybe a flood that would literally sweep away or wash away the ground that we are standing on. Now how can we not fear in circumstances like that? It seems that if there was a time that, that we should fear or at least be understandable that, would, that we would experience fear, it would be for times like that. But the psalmist says that even during these times we can not fear. And he goes on to explain why. In contrast to the rushing of floodwaters and the crumbling and washing away of the cities, the psalmist paints a picture of a city, a city that God is dwelling in, and a city that will not be moved. There is a river with streams that supplies the city with all that it needs in order to be glad, in order to be happy. Remember Psalm 1? Psalm 2? The purpose of the Psalms is to generate within us a way of life and an attitude and faith towards God, a trust in God that creates prosperity and happiness in, the, in our lives. So this river is supplying all of what is needed for the inhabitants of the city to experience happiness and gladness in the midst of God's presence. God lives in this city and God's presence establishes peace and security. In the morning when people begin to see the effects of any disaster that may have happened during the night, the psalm says that God is there helping the city to remain in a place of peace and prosperity. We can wake up knowing that God is still there securing us, protecting us, saving us. The psalmist then moves to some statements about the nations. He acknowledges that the nations are anxious, the nations are groaning, the nations are stumbling and staggering in the midst of the disaster. Now we can see this in our own setting. People are anxious, people are fearful. Governments are scrambling, health systems are scrambling, the markets are collapsing. All we can do with our armies, with our militaries, with our money, with our governments, things are still in turmoil. Every major source of strength that the nations depend upon are not providing the source of peace, the source of strength, and the source of protection that people are looking for. And in the midst of this tumult, God speaks, and the earth literally melts away and collapses because of its inability to withstand the word and the power of God. And for the first time, echoing the starting verses, the psalmist states, The Lord of the armies is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. While the nations are staggering and groaning and anxiety and fear and melting away, the people of God are reminded that God and his armies are ever-present. They are with us, and that God continues to be our strength, regardless of what's going on around us. God is there, and his strength is there, and he is protecting us. The psalmist then invites the reader to behold the works of God. And so these are the things that are going to give us a sense of why we should have such profound hope and trust in God. 
He invites the reader to behold the works of God in order to grow our sense of God's strength and his sovereignty over the events of this world. And there are two specific works that the psalmist wants us to reflect on. The first works of God that we are to to think about and reflect on are the desolations that God has brought to the earth. Yes, the desolations. Desolations are the results of things being laid waste. They are what's left after everything has been destroyed. Now, the desolations could be a result of the military campaigns that God caused and that God instigated. We see this throughout the entire Old Testament. God raises up nations to bring judgment on other nations for their idolatry, their immorality, and their violent treatment of those who are primarily weak and vulnerable. God used Israel to bring judgment upon the Canaanites for their immorality and specifically for their child sacrificing to their idols. God used Assyria and Babylon to bring judgment on Israel for its idolatry and for the elite classes abuse of power and their impoverishing of the working and lower classes. But the desolations could also be the result of physical disasters that God brought upon the nations. We see this also throughout the Old Testament. As with God's use of armies, God was not preferential in his use of natural disasters to punish and to discipline the nations. He brought calamities on four nations like Egypt, as well as the chosen nation of Israel. Now we can step back and ask ourselves, is the coronavirus an act of God? We can't say. We can't say. Is it within the sphere of God's control and sovereignty? Absolutely. Did God cause it? We can't make that judgment. But it has a purpose. It has a purpose. The coronavirus has had an impact upon the world's sense of security. And it has been devastating and it has been total. It is global. Now the second work, so we have these desolations and it seems strange to us that God uses desolations for his purposes. And that it's something that we are to consider and reflect on that strengthens our sense of security that we get from God. But we're going to understand why here in a moment. So the second work, it seems to be opposite of the first, the second of God's works. Now, while God has used armies and physical disasters to bring judgment, here the text is also saying that God is also the source of peace and that he is the one that ends wars. He brings an end to bloodshed. He brings an end to the violence between nations. And where there is a loss of a sense of security and peace as the result of the first works of God in bringing desolation, we see here that peace and gratitude is the result of the second of God's works. So in in these two things, the desolations and the judgments of God, and in the establishing of peace through the work of God, we see the, the full range of what brings people to repentance. Fear of God's judgment is something clearly throughout the entire scripture we see brings people to repentance. But we also see 
that a gratitude for God's mercy is also what brings us to repentance. Fear of judgment and a gratitude and acknowledgement of God's mercy. So in the midst of this turmoil and fear, God calls us to be still and to know that he is God. And this is really the point of the desolations and of the peace. The fear and anxiety we experience in times such as this, or in anything that really brings about fear in our lives, a sustained fear, the fear and anxiety we experience is somehow the result of not thinking and living as if God was God. The psalmist says, be still and know that I am God. He's quoting God there. God is telling us to take a step back and to recognize God for who he is. Our fear and our anxiety are expressions of our hearts when something else other than God has replaced him in our hearts and that other God has let us down. God exclaims here in the psalm, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. As the nations continue to move further and further from God, God's efforts to cause desolations and also to establish peace accomplish one thing. They are to draw people to the fact that God is God and that he alone will be recognized as God. He will draw people to himself through the demonstration of his power, the power to cause and to stop desolations, the power to judge and the power to grant mercy. Other gods will fail to provide an enduring sense of security. Governments, financial systems, jobs, militaries, health, etc. All of these things will, will fail to provide an enduring sense of security. But in the midst of the utter collapse of these non-gods that deceive us with their false sense of security, God remains. And for those who live in his city, they experience the gladness and the sense of security provided by the Spirit of God, even in the midst of the world literally collapsing all around them. And then the psalmist concludes, The Lord of the armies is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, which is a repetition of, a repeat of verse 7, affirming this foundation that we have as God is our refuge. So what does being safe look like for us? What is security? What does it mean that we have a refuge? What does it mean to be delivered from calamities? While the imagery of the psalm paints for us the picture of a, of a beautiful city sustained by the power and the presence of God, that image is for us to have in our minds. While in reality, the earth may be crumbling and washing away. If our physical well-being is what we put our hope in, then we are no different than those whose hope is in money or government or the armies, or health, or jobs, or education, or whatever. 
When these things give way, and we are anxious, and we are fearful, we stumble around looking for something to cling to. Now, I can't help but think about Paul's situation while he was in jail as he narrates and describes in the book of Philippians. He was under the threat of death. And he wrote to the Philippians, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Now, in this situation, Paul is stating that he is rejoicing in the midst of his imprisonment He is rejoicing in the midst of being treated maliciously. He is in a place of suffering, and he is rejoicing. Now, this this does sound strange to us. It does sound strange to us, but as we have seen throughout the Psalms, and as we know from the New Testament, rejoicing in the midst of suffering is, is is a pretty consistent biblical message. It seems trite to us, but it is it is so Uh, um, repeated and so strongly emphasized throughout the entire Bible that it really presses us to dig deeper as to what kind of strength this is. It has the appearance of being spiritual. It has the appearance of being insincere. But I don't think Paul is being insincere and I don't think Paul is just putting on a, a spiritual face. He rejoices for two reasons. First of all, the gospel is being proclaimed. Even in the midst of his his imprisonment, even in the midst of his suffering, the gospel is going out. The second reason that he is rejoicing is that he knows that in the midst of this suffering, in the midst of this trial, deliverance is going to come about. Now, what does he mean by deliverance? It doesn't mean that he's going to be rescued from what is causing him suffering. He's not going to be released from prison. Maybe, but that's not why he's rejoicing. He concedes that he might die. Might be killed as an apostle for the gospel. And he even says that I would prefer to die. But that's not why he's rejoicing either. He says that his reason for rejoicing, his reason for rejoicing, rests in his expectation and hope that he will honor Christ in his body through the courage that God gives him through the Holy Spirit in the face of suffering. Regardless of his experience and outcome, he is confident that the prayers of the church and the work of the Holy Spirit will sustain him with the strength to be courageous and honor Christ in his suffering. 
he will have no reason to be ashamed of how he responds to the suffering. In this context, courage is the ideal to be able to openly profess and stand firm in Christ while presenting to both God and people an unchanging message and an unchanging spirit and an unchanging attitude and unchanging demeanor. It is being able to endure suffering without shame of backing down and turning cowardly. And this is why Paul rejoices. And this, this sense of strength, this sense of security, this sense of power that Paul had is the same sense of security, the same sense of power that the psalmist is declaring in Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength. He looks forward to going through whatever may come, knowing that he will remain courageous and hold himself with integrity to Christ and to Christ's calling. To Paul, this is what it means to be delivered. This is what it means to be secure. This is what it means to be at peace. This is what it means to have confidence. So what does it mean for us right now to have courage? I think first of all, if we're not feeling courageous and secure in God, we need to use this opportunity to ask ourselves, where is our hope? Where is our sense of, where is my sense of security coming from? If you find yourself reacting to the present disaster with, with fear and with anxiety and insecurity in, in, a, in a way that's it's controlling you. You need to acknowledge that whatever you've been clinging to for security, comfort, and peace has let you down. You need to ask yourself, what has replaced God in you for your source of security? What has been your God? need to confess that you have not put your belief and trust in God and that in your unbelief you have sinned against God in turning to other sources of security, indeed in turning to other gods. Your sins against God enslaved you to what the Bible calls the domain of darkness. But God wants you to be in his city, in the city described here in Psalm 46 in a city where he dwells, in a city that is supplied by rivers and streams that provide everything that is needed for the people to experience happiness and joy and gladness. He wants you to be in his kingdom. And he has provided a way for you to join him and his people in his city where the Spirit gives life and security, even in the midst of disasters. The Bible teaches that God has brought you out of the domain of darkness or has offered the way out of the domain of darkness through the ransom of his son, Jesus Christ. Literally through the payment of his son, Jesus Christ. What was too costly of a payment for you? You could never have afforded it, as we learned last week in Psalm 47. God has made the payment through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. We are called to accept God's payment of life through his son. And we are called then to enter into his city for, our, for it has been paid for. Our life has been paid for. It has been ransomed. 
And if you've believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ already, if you, if you understand yourself to be a citizen in the kingdom of God, but have set, found yourself to be overly shaken by this current crisis, overly fearful, overly frightened, you need to acknowledge your fear. You need to confess that you have put your confidence in other sources of strength. And you need to renew your faith in God as your refuge. And as we see throughout all of Scripture, in order for us to put off the fear, to put off the insecurity, we need to put on courage and we need to put on faith. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to put on courage at this point as God's people? What does it mean to live in a way that, that, we, can, that we can live without feeling shameful for backing down in our moment of suffering? How can we walk forward with courage? How can we walk forward and honor God in Jesus Christ? I think there are some very specific things. First, let us rejoice. Let us rejoice. The last couple of nights, our family has, has gathered around in our living room, and Anna's pulled out her guitar and dusted off some old song sheets that we haven't sung for a while, and we just sang together as a family a few songs. And we spent some time praying for each other and for the church and for our, our friends and neighbors and for this world. It's a refreshing time. It's a refreshing time. We need to rejoice in the midst of this hardship. God is in control of the events of this world, and God will be exalted. We do not need to fear for our lives. We do not need to fear for our destinies. Those things are secure. Physical death will only bring us into the eternal presence of God, and continued life on this earth is lived in service to others for the name of Jesus. The same purpose that Jesus had, the same purpose that Paul and the apostles had, the same thing that we can find strength and joy in, to live as Christ, to die as gain. Let us live for Christ with courage and no shame. Let us rejoice. There is no need to fear. Second, if you are in need of help, whether it be financial or, or child care or, or food or household supplies, whatever it is, have the courage to be humble and to acknowledge your need. God has called us to be a family and to bear each other's burdens. We can't bear each other's burdens if we don't know what each other's burdens are. Contact your house church leaders and let them know right away when you are in need. They will be contacting you throughout this crisis to stay aware of your needs, to see how they can pray for you, to see what, how we can serve you as a church. Third, if you have resources to share, be courageous and be ready to make those resources available to meet pressing needs. These are the, this is the exact type of, of, of time that the scriptures are referring to when they say be ready and zealous to meet the pressing needs. This is what we need to do. There are going to be financial needs. There are going to be child care needs. There are going to be transportation needs. There are going to be food and supply needs. This is an opportunity to show our faith, to honor Christ, and to be confident in His ability to provide for us, which He's promised to do, and to provide us with the strength and security through the Holy Spirit. For in the giving of what we have, we're going to be seemingly weakening our own positions. 
We're going to be seemingly making ourselves vulnerable, but in this seeming weakness, we are actually making ourselves strong because we are putting our trust and our care into the security and power of the Lord. And this will bring about what's something that the world is not able to provide, a sense of security and a sense of of glad, excuse me, a sense of security and a sense of happiness and gladness that the world and its resources are never able to provide. We should all make a commitment to Christ and to ourselves as a family that we are going to strive to embody what the church in Jerusalem experienced, that there was not a needy person among them, from Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. There was not a needy person among them. Let's not be ashamed and step back in this moment of need. Let us step forward in courage, trusting God to provide us with what we need and with a sense of security that he promises. Lastly, over the next days, weeks, and months, we are going to see where we can meet the needs of others outside of the church. Yes, we can think conservatively and wonder if there's enough for everyone within our spheres. But let us not think that way. Let us think with courage and love and generosity and sacrifice. Jesus calls us to have the same mind that he did, to think not only of our own interests, but also to the interests of others, to think more highly of others than we do of our own selves. We see this out of Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. This mindset then, this mindset of Christ, causes us to free ourselves from the shackles of selfishness and freely give of ourselves for the good of others. This mindset brought many people to believe in Christ in the early church and throughout the history of the church. Rodney Stark explains in his book, The Rise of Christianity, to cities filled with the homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as real hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachment. To cities filled with widows and orphans, Christianity offered a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. I'm not saying that the misery of the ancient world caused the advent of Christianity. People had been enduring for centuries without the aid of Christian theology or social structures. I am arguing that once Christianity did appear, its superiority, its superior capacity for meeting human problems soon became evident and played a major role in its ultimate triumph. For what Christianity brought was not simply an urban movement, but a new culture. Now many of these Christian values eventually became mainstream in the West. But we live in a time where people's hearts and minds are not secure in the love and in the power and in the strength of God. In this time of great uncertainty, we can show a courage and a resolve only possible through the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead and now lives in us. Let us show the world what it means to trust God, to put our sense of security in His hands, and perhaps a a few, or maybe even a many, will be added to our numbers as what happened in the early church. Last week we were reminded that no man can ransom his life with money. It is too costly. But Jesus Christ has ransomed our lives 
for such a time of this. He, he literally owns us. He has secured us in his city, in his kingdom. And he has bought us for a purpose, to recognize that our lives are not our own, and to give them up to honor Christ and to sacrifice them for the good of others and to experience gladness and joy in ways the world will never know. The Lord of armies is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Amen.